Everybody, welcome to our next episode of Exponential Wisdom. I'm Peter Diamandis here with my dear friend, my coach, Dan Sullivan. Dan, a pleasure as always. And I'm just, you know, I'm still reeling from the bankruptcy of Sears and Robux, mm-hmm. or at least Sears, not unexpected given the exponential changes at hand. But I think, you know, you lived and grew up with Sears. Maybe we should talk about the lessons learned from the bankruptcy of this retail giant and what it means for all of us as consumers. Yeah, well, Peter, it's a perfect example of your 6Ds formula because in its day, Sears was, first of all, the Walmart of the late 1890s, early 20th century, and then it was the Amazon as telephones came in and the cars came in, and it was really amazing. But as you say, I grew up with Sears and Roebuck, and you know, throughout the year, the Sears and Roebuck catalog would arrive in the mail, and it was just which of the seven children that my parents had was going to get first crack at the Sears and Robot <laughs> catalog. But I should say something, you know, and it's quite remarkable how magnificent this company was and that they could actually sell you houses through the Sears and Robot catalog. Really, they sold actual houses. Yeah, they were all pre-cut and boxed for you. So you put in the order and within two weeks, what would be delivered were, you know, any number of crates right from a 500-square-foot house up to a, I think the biggest was 5,000-square-foot, already pre-designed, every part, every piece of wood already cut, and then all you did is hire local carpenters, contractors, who would then construct it according to Sears's directions. Read the constructions. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. And there's several thousand. I mean, they might be 10,000 across the United States. Most of them are now historic sites. They've been declared historic sites. You can't (laughs) fool around with them. But they were beautifully designed. They got great house architects to actually do it. But it just shows you the power of retailing even in the 1800s. That's amazing. I mean, if someone came up with the idea now, it'd be a visionary idea. <laughs> but it may, so, you know, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, Sears had a 132 year run mm-hmm. between the time that it was founded and its recent bankruptcy. And when you think about it, you know, I'm writing about the Sears story in my latest book, Convergence. I talked about Kodak and their discovery of the digital camera and how they should have owned the future and didn't. And then in abundance and in bold, I wrote about Kodak. And here in Convergence, I'm writing about Sears, one of the stories, and how Convergence is completely disrupting and reinventing every industry, and specifically in retail. I read one of the chapters out of your forthcoming book, which I'm deeply excited about and actually I'll put it on public record here that you've got a first order of 600 copies of your next book, which is called Convergence. And actually, the Convergence model that you have really pioneered on stage at Abundance 360, I think, is the key here. So maybe you could talk about Convergence because Sears was created by Convergence of Technologies. Walmart was created by Convergence of Technologies. And now Amazon and other online retailers are being created by the Convergence of Technologies. So can you talk about this Convergence idea? Because a lot of people don't think about technology in these terms. Yeah, sure. I mean, we always think about technologies in very siloed sense that 
you know, a computer is getting faster and faster, or I have a higher memory density, or I can 3D print something. But the reality is real disruption occurs when a number of different areas converge. And I think what was happening in the late 1800s was the convergence of a national road system in the United States, the post office really coming into its full capability, and printing these catalogs. And those three things came together. And maybe other things as well, Dan, that, mm-hmm. that you can think of. I think the railroad system, the full extent of the railroad system was another one. And sure, you know, because Sears was a railroad clerk. I mean, he actually was a station clerk. And uh, about 50 of the first stores that were Sears and Robux were also railroad station clerks in their towns. Yeah. Amazing. They just found how to multiply their knowledge of railroads and transportation. But we really want to get to the essence of this as it now relates the convergence. But can you talk about what gave you the idea in Abundance 360 about actually having a lot of different industries at the cutting edge, actually sharing their knowledge on stage and then making predictions about how they would converge? Yeah, I mean, this is where the fun part is. It's playing jazz on stage where when I love looking at a company or a product or a service and saying, okay, how would this service or this product transform if it was enabled by AI or networks and sensors and virtualized into VR, augmented reality? And we saw this beautifully with film photography, where we had the Kodak camera that was a paper and chemicals business. And what people didn't really see was the whole concept of digital memory and camera sensors and then high bandwidth to be able to transmit images and online cheap storage. And it really transformed the entire film photography and every, you know, transportation from traditional Detroit now heading towards fully autonomous cars and then flying cars. Mm -hmm. Every single industry is changing and we're really at the knee of the curve in terms of how rapidly things are changing. And so what I'm fond of saying to everybody is, listen, we're going to create more wealth in the next 10 years than in the past 100 years, huge amounts of wealth creation. Mm -hmm. But every single industry, every single company and product is going to change in the next 10 years because of the influx of massive networks and trillion sensor economies and AI playing on top of that. Things are going to become automagical. And, you know, using Sears as a jumping point, pal, when I think about retail, right now, retail is such a funny situation where you think of something that you want, and then you might go now, you know, 10 years ago, you'd go to the store and see if you could find it. You might use Yellow Pages, if anybody remembers the Yellow Pages. And now you go on Amazon and try and find it. But where we're going very rapidly is in a conversation to AI, where AI is always listening. Your Amazon Alexa, your Google Now, your Siri equivalent, your Alibaba equivalent. And you might whisper into the air, I wish I had this. And then magically the next day or that <laughs> later that day, it appears, right? The world's becoming frictionless. You're going from an idea you're having to the perfect thing showing up. Mm -hmm. Add one layer on top of that. The perfect thing showing up because your AI is watching what you actually like Mm -hmm. and not what you think you like. It knows when you are 
staring at something a few extra seconds or it's overheard conversations you've had with somebody. Mm-hmm. And it's like having a world-class personal assistant who knows you better than you know yourself. Yeah, I mean, I just was introduced to a AI system out of Florida, and it can it's just applied to your website, and it can tell what people are actually looking at at your website. Not what they're clicking at, but what they're actually looking at, and it can pick up on what you're actually... When you click and see a screen, it knows exactly where your eyeballs are going, and that's probably an early model of something you know that will be much more profound in the coming years. Yeah, I use the term, everything is going to become automagical. What I mean by that is it's somewhat going to become automated, where you don't actually have to do the work or even almost think the thought because mm-hmm. you're leaving breadcrumbs all the time. You know, if you've always been ordering this type of toothpaste, the system will know that and order it for you. Or it might know your genetic code and know that this toothpaste actually has a much better taste that you'll pick up on based upon large-scale data science and will order it and say, Mm -hmm. Peter, I know this is not the normal brand and flavor, but try this. I think you're actually going to like it more. And that's an interesting conversation in the future with your AI. But we've talked about this a little bit in a past Exponential Wisdom, that in fact, if it gets to the point where you're not actually ordering stuff, where your AI is buying the things for you that, you know, you say, listen, I got an event tomorrow. And the AI goes, of course, I know you have an event tomorrow. I've seen the invitations. Uh, Would you like me to order something for you? You say yes, because you trust it so far. And then something shows up as a dress. If you're not actually doing the buying, then that disrupts the entire advertising world, which is the other half of this equation. Yeah. Well, the thing is that there will be some people who are always better at this than the vast majority of other people. And I can remember when the retail started to fail in the hometown that I grew up in. I grew up in northern Ohio, halfway between Cleveland and Toledo. And in the 1950s, they put in the interstate highway system right after the Second World War, and it's still being expanded. It's the largest public works project in the history of the world. It's about 62,000 miles right now. Mm. And every year they add about another 500, 600 miles of connectors and bypasses. But previously, all the traffic went through my hometown, and then when the interstate highway system went by, all that traffic bypassed the town and you know hundreds of other towns with a four-lane highway. And that's just an example of being bypassed. And the thing that's interesting, Peter, is that things can be failing for a long time. So Sears has actually been failing for about 50 years. (laughs) And some people, well, you know, when the stores went bankrupt, when it was announced, I think it was in October, that Sears was fundamentally a bankrupt system, people said, well, why didn't someone tell us, you know, that this was going to happen, you know? Some people get the news with a breeze. There's just a change of breeze in the air. Yep. And some people, you need a feather to grow across your face. And other people have to get hit with a hammer. And still others have to get hit by a Mack truck yep. You know, to be told that, hey, something's changing here. So from your perspective, what's the wisdom in this? We're talking about exponentials yeah. in terms of the conversions. What's the wisdom about what you have to be alert to that maybe the world around you is actually changing. Well, it's interesting, and it's a great setup for this that we didn't talk about. But it's the realization that, bluntly, 
every company eventually is going to go bankrupt. And it's amazing that Jeff Bezos, who I've known you know for mm-hmm. 35 years, Jeff just came out over the last few weeks and he's talked about the notion that, yes, Amazon will eventually go bankrupt. <laughs> it's the darling, it's growing you know, exponentially, it's transforming every world. But even Amazon, you know, Jeff's smart enough to know there are very few hundred-year-old companies. And there are very few companies whose original core product hasn't gone to zero. Microsoft is no longer getting its profits from the disk operating system. And as a result, it has to constantly reinvent itself. And Sears did transform from their thousand-page catalog to their stores, and they tried online then they tried massive amounts of large-scale purchases, but Walmart outdid Sears, and then Amazon has come in and outdone Walmart, and there will be somebody who outdoes Amazon. I think he wrote a letter, actually, to his company. I picked it up about six weeks ago where he made yeah. that exact statement. He says, look, we're not going to last forever. But I think he sends messages to his own company. And yeah. he says, maybe we got another 30 years left. He said, I'm not sure. Awesome. You know, but somebody's going to come along and displace us in the marketplace. Eat our lunch. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, and this story to everybody here is listen, if you're not constantly trying to reinvent your company, I mean, fundamentally from the ground up, and that really means not incremental change. It means how do we completely reinvent what we're doing? Like clean sheet, reinvention, what is a massive disruption of what we do and how we do it? Someone else will. I'm taken by a recent Abundance 360 member I want to introduce him to Coach Dan. His name is Glenn Sanford. And Glenn is in the real estate realty business. And he had thousands of realtors and you know a few dozen employees in 2006, 2007. They were growing. And the 2008 crisis hit. And what he did was he basically had to let go of all of his employees effectively and 90% of his realtors. And they got rid of all their offices And in that moment of crisis, he had an epiphany that the future was not having offices. So what Glenn has created is a company called EXP Worldwide. They're almost a billion-dollar public company now, 10 years later, after that crisis of near-death experience. What he said is, we're not going to have offices. We're going to have a completely virtualized company Mm -hmm. where we're going to have a virtual VR campus on your desktop or your VR headset, and you go to work there every day. So everybody's got their avatar, and they walk around the campus, and they have conversations with each other's avatars. They have meetups and lessons and so forth, but they're growing at like 300% per year, and they've completely reinvented the future of that kind of an industry. And they'll be They're at number five in the United States, they're operating in 50 states and three provinces in Canada, and they're shooting for number three and then number one the year after that. So so anybody listening here, if you're making a profit, if you're considered a success, someone is going to try and eat your lunch. Someone is going to try a radical reinvention. Mm -hmm. Well, not just one person, maybe 10, maybe 100 people. And 99 will die. But if one radical reinvention succeeds, it will displace you. So in one of Jeff's shareholder letters, he said, listen, our success is a function of the number of experiments we do per year, per month, per week, per day. And if we're going to do a lot of experiments, we're going to fail a lot. 
And it's that failure, we have to have thick skin. So ultimately, it's about experimentation. Yeah. Ultimately, it's about willingness to fail. You know, one of the things that generally for a coach, you know, we're just starting our 30th year. What I've noticed is that the fate of the company really depends upon the mindset of the owner and the person who's in charge. And if you talk about reinvention, the reinvention has to start with the person as the example that you gave. Mm -hmm. He started the mindset transformation before his company ever did. Absolutely. It, it has to be top down. It has to be the entrepreneur who says, you know, it can come from a place of fear. It can come place from a board and it can come from a place of excitement. Like, you know, I've been doing the same thing over and it's really good. How do I 10x this? How do I 10x what I want to do here? And our friends at Google X talk about this. If you want to go 10% more, you can get there by working harder, working weekends. If you want to go 10x, which is 1,000% more, you can't get there incrementally. You have to start with a clean sheet of paper. You have to look at how do I completely reinvent what it is we're doing. Yeah. And therein lies both the excitement and the opportunity. So I'm thinking about this. You know, I'm having with Marissa and Bree and Greg, uh, my team and Derek, we're talking about, you know, we did one reinvention for my abundance community. We had Abundance 360, our CEO summit, which fills every year. And then we've added Abundance Digital, mm -hmm. which is our dematerialization, demonetization, democratization, right? It's 10 times cheaper and we've got 10 times as many people in it and it's global. But, you know, we're brainstorming some really yeah. exciting, you know, how do we disrupt that? <laughs> Well, just a little example of that. I started a brand new 10 times program two months ago, and we had roughly about 16 people from outside of North America who had made the trip, and it's two days a quarter for the 10 times. They have two workshops. But in my group were three independent from each other business people from Mumbai. And all three of them had come because they listened to Exponential Wisdom mm. podcast. Love it. And they had heard about you, so they checked out, you know, Abundance 360 and Singularity and all the other things you do. But they checked out our program, and all three of them signed up because they were intrigued by the ideas that came through a podcast. Well, if three of you are listening, congratulations. I'm looking forward to meeting you. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and businesses that are fast growing in India, but they said, you know, if we make the trip, we're having access to information that we don't get in India. So there is still a thing. I've come up with a great line, Peter, and I will do a, a different podcast. I believe there's two types of knowledge in the world. There's inside knowledge and there's worthless knowledge. <laughs> okay. And what you hear on the mainstream media, in the movies and everything else is worthless knowledge. And if you want to know about inside knowledge, find out somebody who knows how to do something a lot better than everybody else in this industry. That's inside knowledge. That's funny. Well, in this chapter on from Convergence on retail, I talk about there are two kinds of companies in the retail space in the future, those that fully embrace AI and its potential and those that declare bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. One of the other topics that was listed that we might talk about today, but it's a topic really worthwhile. And the question that you ask here is, when do you give up on a company? Yeah. And my feeling is that there are phases of companies and you have the original go-getters who create the company and they're all about growth and expansion. And then you reach a status level of a company where they really, really want to hold on to what they have. Mm. And the moment you reach status, 
you can pick a point in the future where you're going to declare bankruptcy. Mm. Then it becomes defense. You're now defending. You see, the person who's trying to defend in the digital age has a thousand things to worry about. But if you're creating something brand new, all you have to do is think about one thing. Yeah, it's interesting to bring that up in this context because it's the most dangerous time for a company is actually when it's successful and your guard is down when you're milking the company and you're the top of the game and other people are coming at you that you just scoff at them because you're doing so well and they have crazy ideas, right? And I talk about this a lot that the day before something is really a breakthrough, it's a crazy idea. And we tend to dismiss crazy ideas because our business is doing so well. And then flip side of the equation is if you have this crazy idea and you're taking shots on goal and it's not working and it's not working and it's not working, when do you give up? Mm -hmm. And it's not easy. I think we've talked about this before that one of my friends and co-conspirators, a guy named Bill Gross, did a survey of 200 companies that he looked at. 100 had failed, 100 had succeeded. And he tried to understand what was it that the 100 had that the 100 that failed didn't have. And he looked at how successful the CEO had been in previous ventures, how much money they raised, what marketplace they were in, and so forth. And the one attribute that was key to the company's success was timing in the marketplace. Because an idea that's come too early isn't going to succeed. And ultimately, you know, can you stick around long enough for your idea to actually get traction? Yeah, it was like Apple's Newton. Yeah, the perfect Apple's yeah. Newton. Is- Just really bad timing, you know, awful timing, too early. Yeah. A decade ahead of its time. But yeah. then again, SpaceX was perfect timing because the shuttle had just shut down. Yeah. Even Tesla, you know, Elon definitely fesses up to the, you know, the loans he got in the 2008 crash were critical to his success at getting financing for Tesla. Mm-hmm. So being smart is one thing. Being lucky with timing is another. And when you give up is important. For me, it's always been, have I been destroying the original purity of my purpose going after a venture? Have I bent over backwards and destroyed what I really wanted to do? And if that's the case, then I'm not going to pursue it anymore because you have to value your time and value the money that you're investing over and over again to perpetuate what might not be a great idea. One of the things I have, you know, people who are investors and investment advisors in the stock market, and I ask them, when you've got a really, really hot entrepreneurial stock that's really been growing and growing, I said, what are the things that you look at when it'll tell you to actually pull your money out of that stock? And he said, when a really successful entrepreneurial business owner starts thinking about buying a sports franchise. <laughs> that is funny. That's a great... And he says, because they're bored. They're bored with their growth, and they're bored with the game they're playing. The other thing is that they don't have any more ideas on the shelf, so now they want to have toys, and a sports franchise is a toy. He said they're no longer thinking about the main game. They're not thinking about growth. They're not thinking about innovation. Now they're thinking about status. That's got to be a Dan Sullivan law. 
For sure. <laughs> he says, I short them. The day that I hear they're trying to buy a sports franchise, I short the stock and I'm out of there. <laughs> I short it long enough to make a killing and then I get out, you know. So anyway, but you know, Darwin really plays a big factor here. Darwin's great book, middle of the 19th century. And we now realize that anything that moves operates evolutionary laws. It kind of got misplayed. It was the survival of the fittest, but it's actually the survival of those that are most alert, curious, responsive, and resourceful. Mm. And I think that really is the story of a company. And there's an interesting question to be asked here. Can any company really survive 130 plus years because as soon as you become a large enough company you have to put the organizational structure in place to support the level of revenue the number of people coordinated and in an organization will osteify as a result of that to some degree and no longer is it doesn't have the creative chops that it had mm -hmm. so can you have both worlds I mean, interestingly enough, right, Microsoft has just reemerged as the most valuable company in the world. Mm -hmm. As Apple dipped down, Amazon has come up, Google's gone down, you know, but Microsoft has sort of continued its march. And it's hard to believe that, you know, man, what is it now? Almost a 40-year-old company. So it's getting up there in, in life. You know, they got out of the retail business for one thing, and they went B2B, and they're designing huge systems now for how cities work, how, you know, whole transportation systems work. And IBM did the same thing. I mean, IBM, people say, is the IBM even around? Yeah, but they had to completely reinvent themselves. You know, Peter, it's kind of an interesting thing because GM just closed down its main factory near Toronto about three weeks ago. And the last shift out, people were saying, you know, why didn't someone tell us this was coming? Hmm. But when I moved to Canada, that complex had 25,000 workers, 3,000 were laid off. And I said, well, what were you paying attention to when 22,000 other people were yeah. being laid off? What was it about the memo that you didn't quite grasp the context, you know? <laughs> But it's interesting that people hang on to the past or they try to hang on to the present. I think it's just a bad habit. It's a bad set of mindsets that you think the present you have has infinite longevity. Yeah, it's that way for everything. 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 Even the environment, right? Putting aside the tremendous socioeconomic issues and political issues of climate change, the fact of the matter is climate has been changing on this planet for 4 billion years. It's just that we want right now, and, and you know, uh, I'm not uh, a, a climate crisis denier. It's an issue, and CO2 in the atmosphere and all of that stuff is true. But the reality is what we want is the climate to stay exactly the way it's been for the last 100 years because that's what, how we put our chips on the playing board. But it's always changing. Mm -hmm. It You know, 4 billion years ago, yes. it was a hydrogen and methane atmosphere, and then this pollutant called oxygen came in and killed everything. <laughs> so we just want to freeze everything. Yeah. Yeah, when I was a kid growing up in the 50s, what they called climate today, we used to call weather. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's a funny thing, Peter, because I'm interested in privately owned companies. So I said, what are the oldest privately owned 
companies, and there's actually a club, oh. a global club, of organizations that are over 500 years old where they've been in the same family for more than five centuries. Okay. And the oldest actually just closed down. It started in the year 530 in Japan. So they had a 1,500-year run, and they were temple builders. Wow. And it was the same family for 1,500 years. And they have dodgy ways of bringing outsiders in and making them members of the family. Sure. But I saw the full list of companies, and there's about 43 that are more than 500 years old in the same family. And you know what industry dominates? I'm not trying to trick you here. Pubs. I'm going to call pubs. Everything related to alcohol. It's distillers, breweries. (laughs) And the oldest continuous pub dates from the year 830 in southwest England. It's been in the same location with the same family since the year 830. So alcohol. I always tell people, you know, a dollar spent on alcohol almost always produces an immediate 10 times return. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, now it's the emergence of THC and marijuana. Yeah. You know, Canadians are always kind of anxious about the United States. No more. They're all going to be really mellow about the United States <laughs> from now. <laughs> you know, but it's interesting to watch this because, you know, I mean, we talk about pot and we talk about any other drugs, but sugar's a drug. Would it be allowed on the market today? Yeah. Caffeine's a drug. Tobacco's a drug. All of Alcohol's these things. Alcohol's a drug. Yeah. The permanence of any drug is whether governments can tax it. Absolutely. Biggest drug addicts in the world are government bureaucracies. And whether religions found it in, you know, it was part of the religious culture or not. Yeah. I think as we've talked on this podcast right now, we've really been talking about the longevity of companies, mm-hmm. the longest lived, you know, 132 years, you know, rest in peace, Sears. We'll see how long Amazon goes. And of course, a lot of this is a function of human longevity as well, Mm -hmm. because a lot of times it's the entrepreneur who maintains the vision, you know, whether it's Hugh Hefner and Playboy, or whether it's Jeff Bezos and Amazon, or if it's Dan Sullivan and Strategic Coach. Mm -hmm. So I would love on our next podcast really to dive into your most recent book, Dan, which I've had a chance to peruse and appropriately dig into, which is my plan for living to 156 by Dan Sullivan. And let's talk about human longevity after having talked about corporate longevity. And I think the two are going to be somewhat involved. Mm -hmm. You up for that? I'm totally up for it. I just want everybody to, just as a plug here for you, Peter, that A360, our live event, is usually sold out months ahead of time, but everybody has access to digital abundance. And my feeling is, I mean, you overgive because you're doing amazing webinars every month that are live that people can actually do. And, you know, I I would say that digital abundance is actually one of the ways that you're making sure that live abundance actually survives. It's true. We have, uh, if you are interested, uh, A360.com is our CEO summit, 360 CEOs from around the world who come together at the end of January every year in Beverly Hills, and it's three days. I spend all year prepping for this. It's a 25-year journey on the Dan Sullivan mentorship path. Dan gets full credit for that vision. It's amazing to think about delivering a program for 25 years. So we meet for three days. 
And then we have monthly webinars and a lot of content in between. And then Abundance Digital, and it's abundancedigital.info is the URL for that. And it's something, again, very proud of. We have 3,000 entrepreneurs. We have a digital app that everybody comes into. We share information and we share mindsets. I'm there delivering content, answering questions. And then the Abundance Digital community also is part of the live three days of Abundance and rather than 15000 bucks, it's 1500 bucks, And of course, we've given a 40% off for strategic coach members because we love coach. This whole ecosystem of mine would not exist without you, Dan. So those of you who don't know Dan's work, I'm a living, breathing, I would say graduate, it's a lifelong process. But Dan has tremendously changed my life and given me abundance across the board. And I'm always thankful to you, Dan and Babs, for all that you've done. So... I'm looking forward to having you around for 156 years, pal. So let's talk about how you're going to do it. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. The next one. Thanks, Peter. Take care, pal. Be well. Bye now.